Father in heaven, thank you so much for this uh, beautiful evening, for the, um, just the group of people you have here with us tonight. And Father, we come, as already was said to you, as people who are all over the map when it comes to our spiritual life, our emotional life, our physical, how we feel physically. We're just all over the place. Some of us are just in a lot of pain. Some of us feel really strong. Others of us are just, we're not sure we believe in you. We don't know. And others, we're just happy to be amongst friends. Um, but we're here in this building, and we're here to learn, and we're here to sing, and we're here to eat together. And so, Jesus, we want um, to honor you as our King. And Holy Spirit, we want to ask that you would give us the courage um, to believe what's true. And as we hear lots of things from, from conversations, from me speaking, um, Holy Spirit, I just ask that you would help us to push aside what isn't true and have the courage to believe what is true um, and to not walk away from something that we know is true. And I ask that in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right, so we are in the Advent season. Now, ordinarily in the Advent season, which is a few weeks before Christmas, uh, there are candles to light and there are themes, and we normally do that. But we kind of approached uh, Advent this year with um, kind of our own themes that don't match the candles. And so we don't have candles this year. But usually what you would do is light a candle and kind of talk about the theme as we look forward to Christmas. Um, now, Advent, literally the word, means coming. And what we do in the Advent season is we begin to slow down and we begin to think about the birth of Jesus and think about the coming of Jesus in his birthday. Okay. Now, last year, what I actually asked all of you to do was during the Advent season was to uh, get rid of your electronics. I don't know if you remember that. Um, so that we could not kind of symbolically say, hey, we're going to step away from the distraction of things. Because Advent really is the time when we kind of get ourselves back into focus on Jesus. Now, our culture has kind of made the Christmas season all about buying things. Um, and I would really suggest, I don't usually suggest this, but I would suggest that you go online, if you have computer, not right now, but, <laughs> but if you have a computer, go online and look at the Saturday Night Live Chris Rock uh, monologue. It's actually one of his few clean ones. And it is an amazing monologue about what Americans have done to Jesus' birthday and how Jesus might feel about that. Um, and so it's a really interesting perspective. But we've, we've become very busy. Now, the other thing about Advent that's really important is that as we slow down, we're not just looking back and remembering the birth of Jesus, the incarnation for a theological word, um, if you want to use it. We're also looking forward to um, the coming of Jesus. So Christmas is not just about looking at baby Jesus, but looking at baby Jesus reminds us as we're on the other side of the resurrection that Jesus is coming back. And so the, us slowing down is important as we approach Advent. Now, last week, Rod had a very interesting passage. He read out of Numbers, and it was this really strange story. You see, it was about the Israelites, and we've been studying them. They're God's Old Testament people. And they're wandering around the desert, and they were complaining about their food. They didn't like the food they had. It was kind of getting monotonous. And so they started complaining, and God sent a bunch of snakes, and the snakes bit them. 
and they started to die. And so they, they, they told Moses, Oh man, we did the wrong thing. You need to, to fix this with God. And so God said, make this, you know, basically a cross and put a bronze snake on it. And everyone who looks at the bronze snake, um, will be healed. And then Rod connected that to John where Jesus says to a very famous rabbi, Nicodemus, a very prominent man in a converse, a theological conversation, he says that Jesus himself has to be lifted up. The Son of Man has to be lifted up, just like the snake, in order for people to be saved, for people to have everlasting life. And so the first idea that we have to hold on to for Advent is this idea that we have to look at Jesus. But for those people to look at the snake, they had to have faith, right? They had to believe that the snake was going to heal them. And then they had to obey to look at the snake. They had to look up at the snake. They had to do that. And so what you and I are called to as we begin the Advent process is that as we look at the baby, we have to believe. This is kind of a crazy thing. God of the universe decides to become a weak, vulnerable baby. It takes faith. There's no reason in that. It doesn't make any sense. You have to have faith. Okay, I believe that. But then, out of obedience, you have to say, okay, I'm going to look at the baby. I'm going to take the baby Jesus in. So that's the first thing that we need to take hold of in Advent. Now, this week, we are, I'm going to tell you a story. I'm going to tell you a story about a guy named Abraham. Now, I know you can't see all of these drawings that I have up here, but this is my sketch of Abraham and all of his family. You'll see this. But anyway... Abraham lived 2,000 years before Jesus, or to be correct, he lived 1,976 years before Jesus was born. And Abraham had this interesting interaction with God. He was His name at first was Abram, and God shows up to him and calls him to go to a land that he doesn't know, and he's going to bless him. And he says that I'm going to bless all the nations through you, Abram. And it says that Abraham or Abram believed that this was true. And that was accounted to him as righteousness. Okay, He believed it. He believed that God was going to bless him. Now he knew, or bless the world through him, now he knew that the world was pretty big, and he knew he couldn't make it all around to all the people like duck, duck, goose. Like He couldn't bless them all by himself before he died. He was already old. So he knew that he needed to have a son, and yet he had no son, and he believed. And Abraham... It's very, it's, it represents a, a change in how we understand our relationship with God because it wasn't about what Abraham did that he got a blessing or that God cared or God gave him righteousness. It was about his faith. It was about his willingness to believe that relationship with God is not built around what you do. It's about what you believe to be true, that God, what God said is true. So Abraham is told that he's going to, through him, all the nations are going to be blessed. So Abraham does eventually have a son named Isaac. And Isaac has a son named Jacob. And they all look the same. Because they're Jewish and they have beards. I don't know. Or they're stick figures. Anyway, Jacob has some sons. He has 12 sons. And then those 12 sons have big families and they become tribes, and they end up in Egypt in captivity. 
and they groan. Remember, we spent the last 12 weeks in Exodus and we learned their story. And in the beginning of Exodus, they're groaning under the slavery and the abuse of the Egyptians. And so God hears all of this. God sees all of this. And God sends a man named Moses. And he goes into Egypt and he has a talk with the Pharaoh. And he says, Pharaoh, God says you need to let my people go. And Pharaoh says, I'm a God. And Moses says, no, you're not. And they have a little dialogue about it. There's a whole bunch of plagues. And Pharaoh decides he's not a god. And so he lets the Israelites go. They wander in the desert for 40 years. They end up in the promised land. They go through a lot of judges. And they end up, and they all look the same, with King... Yeah, it looks like me. They end up with King David. Now, King David was a warrior king. He was the second king of Israel. Um, he was the first one God chose, but he was the second one. And uh, he made peace because he was a military strength. He conquered his enemies. He created borders. He created safety. He was a warrior king. In fact, he had more trouble in his family than he did with the borders. There was always squabbles going on around in his family, but he gave Israel kind of put them on the map militarily, okay, as a military strength. Now, he had a son named Solomon, and and Solomon became a world-famous king. He was famous for his wisdom. He was famous for his wealth. People traveled from all over the world. He was probably the most wealthy king in the known world. And people came all over to hear him. Now, this is the point. This is the point. If anybody was writing the story, this would be the moment when the promise to Abraham should have happened. This is it. This is the moment when all nations like, could be blessed by Israel. They are at their prominent, most prominent place. Solomon is the most awesome king. And yet things don't really work out for them. The blessing of Abraham doesn't come to fruition. And things don't go very well. And Solomon dies, and things kind of fall into disarray. And a prophet appears named Isaiah. Right there. Hi, Isaiah. Um, and he appears, and in, in Isaiah 49.6, he basically says, it's not really a big deal for me to gather Jacob's people together. Jacob, remember Jacob way back there? It's not a big deal for me to gather them together. I'm not even going to just do that. I'm going to use his people to bless the Gentiles. And not only are going to use them to bless the Gentiles, but they're going to be the light of the salvation of the world. And I think about that time, most people were going, okay, Isaiah, like, we're telling our kids these stories. Now, a lot of you have these stories in your family about, like, your, you know, that, your dad or your grandpa, and he did this, and this is why your family is important, but it's really inflated. Right? Well, this is kind of the Israelite story. Yeah, Abraham was our father, and the whole world's going to be blessed through us, and this is really amazing. Yet it's not really happening. So things weren't going really well. Isaiah appears. People end up in and out of um, exile and all those kinds of good things. And uh, some prophets appear, and they keep saying the same thing that Isaiah's been saying. And then at the very end of the Old Testament, this guy named Malachi shows up. He's a prophet. And in Malachi chapter 1, verse 11, he 
says basically, guess what guys, don't worry. God is, God is saying that wherever worship is happening, wherever incense is being burned, I'm going to be worshipped because I'm the Lord God Almighty. It's still going to happen with you guys. And after Malachi speaks, there are 400 years of silence. And in this narrative, we end up with the Babylonians overrunning Israel, then the Persians, then the Greeks. And then in 63 BC, we got this mean dude named Pompey who shows up and he rides into Jerusalem. Now, how many people know who Pompey is? If you know anything about military strategy or anything, like he's the man to read. He was incredible as a general. But he basically defeats Israel and he rides into the temple and he basically desecrates it. And at this point, and moving forward, Israel is at its lowest point. There is no way that this promise to Abraham that the world is going to be blessed is going to happen through Israel. It's just not going to happen. They're at the worst place. They're under Roman rule. And tonight we're going to look at Luke chapter 3. So if you could turn to Luke chapter 3 if you have a Bible. Um, If not, you can just listen to me. We're going to do... um, You're going to help me. So those of you who are good at pronouncing names, you should open your Bible. Okay? Because we have a few names to pronounce. So I will stop and one of you will pronounce it for me. All right? So chapter 3 starts like this. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. This is important. The writer Luke, who's a historian, he's been commissioned to write this, to gather all the information about Jesus. He wants you to know that this happens at a particular time in history. When Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Ituria, and and tetrarch of Abilene, right? During the high priesthood of Ananias and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it was written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. So, in the moment when everything seems desperate, when the moment when Israel has basically given up, other texts, other Gospels tell us there's this man that shows up, they tell us what he's wearing, John the Baptist. He's wearing camel's hair, he's dipping his grasshoppers in honey, and he's yelling and dunking people. But what he's yelling is the words of Isaiah. He's telling people that you need to repent, but he's saying first that you need to make the road straight. Now this is a very typical thing to happen in ancient culture when a king or ruler is coming. So there's a city, and the city people are hanging out doing their thing, but people don't have enough time to keep up the roads. 
They don't have enough time to make straight any paths or clear anything. But when the king is coming, he sends someone in front and that person gets to the city and he's like, you guys need to hurry up and get the road straight. You need to make things clear. You need to make the path straight. So John the Baptist begins to yell out, somebody's coming. Now nobody knows that Jesus has been born. Nobody knows that the God of the universe is you know, just a few blocks away. But John the Baptist shows up and the first thing he tells people is you need to make your path straight. You need to get ready. You need to repent. Because guess what? God is so powerful, He's going to level everything out and He's coming and you're going to see His salvation. And so He's just yelling these things. Now that was important for the first century Jew to know that Jesus is coming and that people needed to begin to repent and they need to make their path straight. But for us in Advent, John the Baptist is saying the same thing. You see, here's the thing. You and I, how many know what the word anesthetize means? You know what anesthetize means? Somebody tell me what anesthetize means. To numb out, right? We live in a culture that lives for being numb, right? We, we don't want to feel, we don't want to be present. And so, but that's not just our culture, that's all cultures. So John the Baptist shows up and he's yelling. And you know what he wants you and I to do? Is he wants you to trip on him. He wants you to stub your toe on him. He wants you to wake up. And you know what he's saying? Make straight the pass. He's coming. Now, for some of you, you've been a Christian for a long time, and you guess what? It's been 2,000 years since Jesus ascended into heaven. It seems like he's not in a hurry to come back, Right? And for some of you, you might think maybe this is just a little fairy tale, I believe. That it's become just like the promise of Abraham for a set for the Israelites. Yeah, it's a nice story. It's how we get our identity, but it ain't going to happen. Right? Or maybe some of you, you really are excited that God might be coming back. But you're just so busy and you're so caught up in things. Advent is the time when John the Baptist rears his ugly head, and begins to yell at us, everybody wake up! Like Just like Paul says in Ephesians, wake up, O sleeper! Wake up! John the Baptist is a wake-up call to you and I. He's, he's trying to get our attention. Now, how many of you, of you have seen the, the Mockingjay, the, the latest movie of the... Uh... All right. Well, there's a scene in that movie, for those of you who didn't see it, where they're in a bunker and they're being bombed. And they have these little camera-like pans up and you see the little cracks in the ceiling. Like it's about to like cave in like because they're being bombed and they're in a bunker. And there are these cracks. Well, that's what John the Baptist is saying to us. Guess what, guys? There are cracks. There are cracks. Jesus is coming back. He's not sitting around on his butt doing nothing. He has a plan. He's coming back. Wake up. Make the path straight. Repent. Repent. Now, repentance, if you don't know, and, and if you've been around for a long time, you've heard me saying this, but repentance for a Jewish person, for anybody, the word simply means to turn around. So if you're moving in one direction and you repent of that direction, you go the other way. But there's a special thing about Jewish repentance because if you read all of the Jewish rabbis and all the stuff, you know, you can... They, Rabbis talk ad nauseum about everything. 
But what they like to talk about is repentance. Because they believe that God, there's access to God through repentance all the time. A true Hebrew lives his life in a repenting mode. So having John the Baptist say, hey, it's time to repent, it makes sense to them. It's time to turn around. It's time to move from the direction you're going. Right? It's time to change your direction. If you hear that tonight, you should probably have the same question that those first century Jews had to John the Baptist. It's a very typical question. But before we get there, I want you to listen to John the Baptist's indictment of the people. Because you see all the people come out. In verse 7, John says to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, the reason that John the Baptist addresses Abraham, right? Even though the promise hasn't come true, all nations haven't been blessed by through Abraham yet. Israel hasn't gotten to partake in that. They hold on to Abraham as the one who gives them identity, so much so that the rabbis would say that if a poor Israelite somehow wandered towards hell, Abraham sat at the door to hell to make sure they didn't end up in there. Right? Abraham was their man. And John the Baptist was like, Abraham ain't your man because he can make people for Abraham anytime he wants. Okay. Now, to go back to us, what John the Baptist is attacking and what he's going after is the Hebrew people's entitlement. That they were entitled by their nationality, by who they're connected to. If we move forward to 2,000 years after Jesus, you and I as Americans are some of the most entitled people. Now, I know that all of you are anti-establishment, cool people. You all sit in couches and wicker and you think you're really cool. I know who you are, right? We all think that somehow we're not part of the establishment. We live in communes. We live in compounds. We, like, we, we got it, right? Oh. We're bought into this culture just as much as everyone else. We have a sense of entitlement. We have a sense that we deserve things. And you see it in our kids, because it's natural for any kid, but that they, they, that that's not fair the way this happened. And you look at the news, which I try not to do, and what do people keep saying? It's not fair. It's not fair. Nothing's fair. And we begin in our life, to see like people getting things or us not getting things or or just we, we feel entitled basically to do what we want to do when we want to do it and not have anybody tell us that we shouldn't do it when we want to do it and how we want to do it without any consequences. Right? That is kind of who we are. And even if you're a good follower of Jesus, villager who sits on a couch, you still kind of have that part of you. It's there. And John the Baptist is calling you a name. He's calling you a brood of vipers. Okay, Who warned you of the coming wrath of God? 
Who warned you? But really what he's saying is, wake up, guys. Wake up. This is serious. This is not, this is not just fun times. Yes, we're supposed to have joy. We're supposed to enjoy one another. But this is serious. What John the Baptist is saying. Be serious about Jesus. And so, once you hear that indictment, you should have the same question that they do. They say, verse 10, what should we do then? The crowds ask. What should we do? Because if someone's calling me a brood of vipers and telling me that I'm entitled and you know all that, they better tell me what I'm supposed to do. They can't just leave me standing here with a bunch of names. That doesn't work. And I love John because he, he's very kind. He tells you very simply how to deal with this. He answered, anyone who has two shirts should share it with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. That's pretty simple. Now, we're not going to look at... We can think about the philosophical ideas here. He's saying if you have stuff you don't need, you should give it to people who have stuff you don't need, they need, that you don't need. Right? But let's be practical. What he's saying is, if you have one shirt and you don't need the other shirt, you should give it away. Right? Now, part of that's, you know why I have lots of shirts? Well, there's a couple of reasons I have lots of shirts. Because I, after a while, I don't look good in the other shirts. And I want to buy more shirts so that I continue to look good. Because my eyes, you know, I need to make them look good by the certain color of shirt I have. And eventually it wears out. And I need a new shirt, right? But mostly I want more than one shirt because what happens if I lose the other shirt? What happens if it gets a hole? What ha- That's why I have more shirts. So I'm going to actually give you an assignment. I'm going to ask you, if you so dare, to look in your closet and do exactly what John the Baptist tells you to do. I want you to take a shirt. And I would ask you to take your favorite shirt, but you probably won't do it. But take a shirt, and I want you to either give it to someone in this church you think needs it, or just might look cute in it. Or I want you to give it to somebody who you know needs it. Go take your favorite shirt and give it to Goodwill, so you don't even know who gets it. I don't want you to feel the entitlement, the the control that you live in being ripped away, especially if you're willing to give your favorite shirt away. John the Baptist tells us and tells first century Jews you're entitled and then when they say what should we do he simply says give away your extra shirts and if you have some extra food give that away. What you and I are so desperate to do is be in control and to be safe. And what John the Baptist is saying is the king is coming and all you need is the shirt for today. He'll take care of tomorrow. He'll make sure you have a shirt for tomorrow. He'll make sure you have enough food for tomorrow. He's going to take care of it. You don't need to be in control. The thing that John the Baptist is yelling out at you and I when he calls us a brood of vipers is he's telling us we're all control freaks. We don't, you, you don't need God. You have no need for Him. And he's saying you need to be put into a needy place so that you understand who God truly is. The first thing that John the Baptist calls us to think about during Advent is our control. 
And he asks us to do something very practical. To give what we don't need away. So the tax collectors came. Now these are the bad dudes. They came to be baptized. And I love it in this text here. It says, even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? And he replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. So if the first thing we need to address is our control, the second thing we need to address is our use of power. Now, maybe a lot of us feel powerless in, in a capital culture, a capitalist culture where we, where maybe we don't have a lot of money or whatever. But here's the thing. All of us exert power. Like my son, who's nine years old, is here today, wherever he is, right there. We have bunnies. Now the bunnies can run fast, but he's stronger, bigger, and faster. He will get the bunny. And the bunny is helpless and powerless. He has, the bunny has to do whatever my son says, right? But my daughter, like, my son cannot make that happen with my daughter. Like, he can try, but she'll just sit on him. It's not gonna work, right? And this is true, my daughter can try to make me do it, but I'm just gonna sit on her, right? This is how this works. A power of sitting is, is, all of us exert power. All of us manipulate. Some of us are really awesome at the way we use our words. Some of us use our silence and our shyness to control things. We use our power. We're always using power. Right? And what John the Baptist is saying is don't abuse it. Don't abuse the power you've been given. Don't extort people, soldiers. Tax collectors, only take what you need, what you're, you're supposed to take from people. So in Advent, the thing that you and I, John the Baptist, is calling us to in the second week of Advent is to wake up to our entitlement and then practice letting go by, letting, by giving away our shirts giving away some of our food, and really beginning to look at how we exert our power. Is it our words? Is it our silence? Is it our economic status? The way we spend our money? There's a lot we can play a long time with how our power is used and abused as entitled people. Now, Why? Okay, so I gotta do this. Why, why would I do this? What, what would, why am I going to do these things? Well, John the Baptist goes on to say, because he's coming, and guess what? When Jesus comes, he's gonna separate the wheat and the chaff. He's gonna separate people. He's going to come and fix things, he tells them. He's, but he's, he's coming. And you're going to meet him and you're going to see him and you're going to feel the impact of him and you want to be ready. And the only way that you can be open to receiving him is if you've let go of your control and you've let go of your power. That's the only way that you're going to be able to face a living God in a submissive way and benefit from it. Now that's what he's saying to the first century 
Jewish person. But in Advent, 2,000 years later, as we reflect on the birth and as we look forward to the coming of Jesus, let me tell you something that you need to hold on to really tightly. Jesus has changed your life even if you don't believe in Him. The last 2,000 years are much better time to live than all the time before Jesus. The reason, the reason that you and I can spend time talking about Ferguson, and I have no right to give an opinion about it, but the reason that we are talking about it and concerned about how young African men are, are being treated by police, and what, it doesn't matter about your opinion, the reason that we can do that is we actually believe that human beings are valuable because they're made in the image of God, even if we don't believe in God. That ethic is part of our country. We believe that people are important. And that comes from Christianity. It does not come from Buddhism. It doesn't come from Islam. It doesn't come from any other religion. The reason that there are hospitals all over the world is because of Jesus. Death and resurrection. There was no such thing as hospitals. Organizing and taking care of people prior to Jesus. Yeah, there was some stuff like that, but nothing like it is now. Just the idea and ethic of you treating someone else how you'd want to be treated is because of Jesus. So we live in that time. Jesus has transformed things. And so when John the Baptist is saying, guys, wake up. Jesus is cracking into everything and he's everywhere. And yet, a lot of you are like me. You feel really anxious inside when you wake up sometimes. Some of the things that you've done in your life you feel really guilty about and you feel ashamed like you're weighed down by that. You feel selfish. You know your own self. You, you feel like you can't get ahead. Like there's a lot of things that weigh you down. Your childhood, how you've been treated, your abuse, all those things. And yet the thing, here's what John the Baptist, his, his friend, says. John the Apostle in Revelation. The reason why you and I would wake up, the reason why we begin to prepare, the reason why we would even get excited, the reason why we want to celebrate Jesus' birthday. In Revelation chapter 21, Jesus tells us the way, or John, Jesus through John tells us the way it's going to be. This is what John saw. Then I saw a heaven, a new heaven, and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautiful, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. (coughs) Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost and the spring of water of life. From the spring of water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, 
and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderous, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. John the Baptist is saying, guys, get ready. Because there is a time when God is going to come back. Jesus is going to come back and he is going to dwell with us. And my pain, my struggle will be wiped away. And something new. Not not me sitting on a cloud strumming a, a fun ukulele singing goofy songs. That's not what this is going to be about. No, a new world and a new heaven where there is no tears. Where sorrow is wiped away. Where my subconscious and my conscious brain are not affected by sin and corrupted. That's something to get excited about. John the Baptist saying, wake up, there are cracks. He's coming back, get ready. And then he says, it's real simple. The way you start to get ready for the coming of Jesus. And the coming could be tomorrow and the coming could be in 2,000 years. But to get ready is go look in your closet, take out a shirt, and give it to somebody who needs one. That's how you start. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us time to slow down and to reflect on you becoming a child. Vulnerable and innocent. Becoming a child for us. Coming and dwelling with us. And saving us. In the midst of all the craziness of Christmas, that our culture has constructed. I ask that you would give us the opportunity to take deep breaths, let go of our control, let go of our power, and be ready to receive you. I ask that in your name, Jesus. Amen.